0: Back in 1958, the uh, Green Bay Packers had uh, suffered yet another losing season—the worst in all of their history. They had only won two out of 12 games. So you know what they did—they fired the head coach. But <laughs> always happens, and they hired unexpectedly this uh, inexperienced, this green young man from New York named Vince Lombardi. Uh, a year later, they were seven and five. Two years later, they went to the NFL championships and lost the only playoff game that Lombardi's Packers would ever lose. Over all of the years of this team playing together and winning together and winning championship after championship, they became, you know, the veterans knowing the game of football. And yet, before each season began, the same thing happened over and over again. Uh, They would come into their training facility. All of the football players would be there sitting, and Lombardi would make this um, uh, dynamic entrance into the room, stop and pause for a moment in silence, and then he would take a ball, hold it up, and say, Men, this is a football. They must have known what it was. And yet Lombardi was convinced of the fact that though football is a complex sport, and it is, that the only way to do it well is to make sure that the fundamentals were in place. He thought this was true of any area of life. That if the secondary, the external things were ever going to be right, the most important things had to be in place. And he would talk about how this ball is shaped differently from other balls and had to be thrown in a different way. And all that meant is that blocking had to be at certain kind of angles and the tackling had to be done in certain ways. He was convinced that only when you knew the fundamentals, grasped them and implemented them, could they ever be successful. And what competing coaches always said about playing the Packers was this. We knew exactly what they were going to do and they did it. But we couldn't stop them anyway because they did it so well. All right, Lake Avenue Church. I'll put that Ha, Good catch. We have been here over a century. And this church has grown to be a quite sizable church. And we do so many things. And I've become convinced that one of the most important things for me to do as your pastor is as we begin our fall time together to walk in and perhaps stop in silence for just a moment so you'll listen and say, my brothers and sisters, this is a church. And to ask again what it is And what has to be the most important to us. And what we must do to become a part of what God is doing. For three years now, I've talked again and again about what our Father says His church is. It was His eternal work. It was His eternal plan in this fallen world where people made in His image whom He loved. But people who have walked away from Him can find a way to be made right with one another, with Him, and with the world. That our lives can be what they should be. That we are to be a people, a family, that God has called together. We enter into that family through faith in Christ. We're knit together by His Holy Spirit. But He calls us together in this difficult world. And the Bible says to bring glory to His name. And by glory, I know that's a religious term, but listen to me. It means that we are to show this world what He is like. To glorify, to reflect, the greatness of God to this world. Uh, I, I've said it so many times. The, 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 the main attributes of an athlete, like a football player, to be seen on the sports field. The main attributes of, of, of a great musical performer is to be seen in the performance hall. You'll see other attributes in other places, but that's where you see the greatest strength. And the great attributes of our God are to be seen Where? Paul would declare in Ephesians chapter 3, to him be glory, amazingly, in Jesus Christ. Of course, as Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But the other place is what shocks us. To him be glory in Jesus Christ and in and in the church. I was talking about this. I talk about it all the time, don't I? <laughs> I was talking about this with a group of seminary students just a few weeks ago, and they put together a statement that I liked. They said, so... The church is a people God has called together for himself to show all creation who he is. I really like that. And if that's what the church is, then it has a couple of implications for us. Uh, One, if we're to show the world what God is like, when we gather together, we, we should be a people that when others watch us and see us, they should see something of what God is like. They should come and say, look at those people. What are they doing worshiping together? Different ages, different backgrounds, different skin colors. What on earth are they doing? And when we see what the church is, that when God's done with it, it's going to be made up of people from every tribe and language and nation in one family, then that's what we are to be. (laughs) And when people see it, they say, we know that's right. And the world tries to bring it about through political pressure or whatever, but it doesn't happen there. What's it doing here? God must be in this place. That must be what He is like, a reconciling God. And then then, when they get to know us, and they look at people like us and they say, but those those people are imperfect. Every one of them. (laughs) What are they doing in the presence of God together? And what they're going to know is that God is a forgiving God, and a merciful God, and a gracious God. Amen? In seeing us together, they should know what God is like. So that's one of the implications. But it also has this very personal implication for us that the church should be a place where, as Paul put it in Colossians 1.28, each one of us, as we participate in the life of church, each one of us should know the power and the work of God so that we will become complete in Christ. In other words, the church should be a place that when we come into this, something should happen in our lives. We give our lives back to God. We get things right. And we go out of this place being different from what we came in. And we go into the workplace, our families, our schools, our communities, and people should look at us and say, something's happening in his or her life. And it's good. And they'll see God at work in and through us. God will be glorified. Sounds good, doesn't it? Now, if you're like me, there's a question in the back of your mind. I can hear myself saying to myself, but, 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 Pastor Greg, I've been to a lot of churches and they don't always glorify God. <laughs> they sometimes fight with one another. Did, did, were you thinking that? Think it. Think it. Uh, sec, sec, <laughs> second thing, but, 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 Pastor Greg, I've seen a lot of people who've been in church a lot of time for most of their lives and they're just as cranky and cantankerous as anybody I've ever seen. And in fact, if we're honest, we look at our own lives and say, I've been to church a lot of times, and why am I not becoming all that I should be as quickly as I think I should? Have, were you thinking that? So what's, what's going on here? Either, maybe it's both of these, number one, the church family is not being what it should be, and we need to gather again and open this word and the pastor needs to do some sermons called, What is the Church? <laughs> so, and, and pray that God will help us to be what He would have us to be. And or, perhaps the church is being what God would have it to be, but you and I are not, for some reason, really tied in, you know, connected. So that the life-changing, transforming power of God is working through His family into our lives. And so as I begin this fall, that's what I want us to think about. I want us to think about how you and I should connect to the life of this church family in such a way that God will do His work in us. And I've been asking, where on earth do I turn in the Bible to find some help with this? And we're going to turn to that text that didn't Christiana read that so well, Psalm 95. Our brothers and sisters in Christ who have gone on before us have always turned to this text as the guiding and instructing text for what they should do when they gather together to worship God. Our brothers and sisters around the world, I call it historically, the church, our family, both deep and wide, around the world, when they gather and ask, what should we do when we gather together? This is the text that has guided them. It is a call to come together. Uh, many Christians have called it the great venite. That's only if they knew Latin. Latin. It's the Latin for come together. You must come together. And it comes again and again in this text. And it tells us what should happen when we come together so that we can know God and experience him and know his life. So as we think about one way that we connect to the life of God through the church, it is that we come together to worship him. It's not the only one, but it's the first way that we connect to the life changing power of God. And as you look at Psalm chapter 95, it's so simple. And so I'm going to walk through it as quickly as I can. But I hope you will listen carefully and prayerfully. Because it tells us what corporate worship is. Then it tells us why corporate worship is important. And why you need to be here just as you are right now week after week after week. Why it is of eternal importance to you and us. And to the glory of God. And in number three, it tells us how it's to be done. How am I going to do that in about 20 minutes? Uh, I probably am not, but we're going to see. Number one, what is it? And as you look through the text, if you have your psalm in front of you, you say, okay, come, come, come. All of us come. And in the first five verses, sing for joy when you come and shout aloud to God when you come and come before Him with thanksgiving and extol Him with song. And then you get down to verse six. But also, when you come, bow down and worship, kneel before the Maker. And then verses eight through eleven. Also, when you come, listen to His voice. When I was in seminary, uh, one of my profs asked me and all of us to write a definition of worship, and this is what I wrote. I haven't changed it very much, and I've shown it to you before. And you note takers, it's in the worship folder but let's look at it again. I wrote, Worship is the proper response of the whole of our lives to the triune God. It's our response to who God is so that when we worship, what we do is we ascribe all honor, praise, and worth to God precisely because He is worthy so that true worship results in God being at the center of what? Both of our adoration and then our action. Both in our personal lives, but then also of our corporate gatherings. Now with that definition in front of you, notice there are a couple of parts. Once, one is that when we worship then, it's to draw in the whole of our beings. It's not just a response of one part of me, but all that I am is responding to, to the person that God has revealed himself to be. Look at Psalm 95. I'll just show you how, how that's put together. Verses 1-5 through five just seems like it's talking about the emotional part of us. We are to sing for joy. Ah, oh, When we worship, you there should be some shouting around here. Some churches shout better than we do. When we come together, there should be some thanksgiving and extolling of God. You see, this is, we cannot, if we're going to worship the God as God is, go around our emotions because that's a part of what God has made us. To be and to have. So so true worship, we have this emotional response to the greatness of God. But we can have all this emotional response and still not worship, because when you come to verse six, when we come and see who God is, we have to bow down before him and worship and kneel before our Maker. Which in the Hebrew, which is the Psalms were written in, is a surrender of our will to Him. So it's not just an emotional response. There is a volitional response. I say, Father, I came into this place and this is the lifestyle I wanted to lead and I see you want me to live this way. What is worship? It is saying, oh, it's so hard, but your way, not mine. When you do that, when you give your will to Him and choose to go His way as hard as it is, you're worshiping. But it's not just that. As you get to verse 11, it is also His voice being spoken. Some people don't like how Psalm 95 ends because it looks like such a downer. You're not going to enter my rest if you don't hear and obey my word. But it is great Hebrew poetry. It's supposed to shock people like us who have been to church. Some of us have been to church so many times that when we hear the word, we just go out and live as we did before. He says, no, 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 no. I I want you to listen to me. When I speak to you, I am God. I want you to know how to live because I'm going to teach you, but then also respond to it. And verses 8 through 11 talk about the mind, understanding who God is and how He created us to live because we cannot live what we have never learned. We cannot apply what we have never grasped. And so we see it here. Uh, The emotion, verses 1 through 5, the will, verses 6 through 7, and the mind, verses 8 through 11, all responding to God. Do you see that? So you and I can come together. And we can do, you know, the kind of pastor you've hired who was in school far too long. I can get up here and just teach and teach and teach and teach and teach. And you can know everything about the Bible and everything about theology. And all that you're going to have is a big head. But it might be that we're just cerebral. There's no passion for God. And that's not worship. It's a part of worship, but not all of worship. Or we can come in together. And we can just have so much emotion. We can be weeping in one part of the church and dancing and jumping in another and running up and down the aisles. But if we don't know God, then that kind of worship is going to be no different from the ecstatic, frenetic kind of activity of many sects and cults in our world. Or we can have our minds filled with truth And our emotions touch by it. But then when we leave church, we're just as cantankerous and cranky and mean-spirited as when we came in. And that's not worship either. True worship ties the whole of us together. We hear who God is and how we are to live. We say, Father, here's my life. I will live like that. But our emotions have to be touched or we'll never have the motivation to do so. There was a a great man of God who just passed away earlier this year, Dr. Takumbo Adiemo uh, from the continent of Africa. He was one of the main people God has used to to lead to the great growth of our brothers and sisters on the continent of Africa. But as he saw the church in Africa just growing exponentially and he saw the services filled with emotion, he said, I'm going to draw a picture of the body of Christ in Africa as I see it now. And this is what he, he drew. You see, the, the top part, the head, is, of course, the mind, how much you understand what God has said. The The body was both the numbers, but also the emotional and inner response to God, which he saw to be quite strong. <laughs> and the uh, the feet and the legs had to do with the putting it into practice, this, this volitional piece, the this service to God. So he said, we don't know what we believe and we're not living it. We have a lot of emotion. And for us to be what God would have us to be, we have to somehow grow in the totality of our being. I I showed this to the seminary students. And I say, how would God draw us? And in about three minutes, everybody started laughing because they knew we would be one big head. (laughs) They they knew in seminary. We know everything. No no heart. no, no Anyway, how would he draw us? How would he draw Lake Avenue Church? How would He draw you? I'm just saying that our gathered worship is a time in which the whole of our being... I ask you to surrender your minds as I teach His Word and I ask us to surrender our emotions as we sing and praise God together and then to make sure we respond, leaving this place committed to living for God. It's the response of our whole being. That's a part of it. Now, the other part of that definition that I wrote had to do with this. When we worship, we ascribe all honor and praise specifically to God because He's worthy. It is the response of our being to God. Uh, the word worship, I, I think I wrote this too, is uh, putting together uh, two older English words, worth and shape. It's the thing that is worth so much to you and me that it shapes our lives. And some people say, I don't worship anything. And I'll say, oh, yes, you do. Something is shaping the decisions that we make. It is what is of ultimate importance to us so that it shapes the direction of our lives. Some people even come into church and say, yes, I want to worship God, but there is a way of life, a style of life, that I'm going to live that way no matter what God says. They worship that. There are many people who worship their careers, a certain pleasure that they will not give up to Him. But here as we look at it, the thing that we worship must be something that is worthy of shaping our lives. And there's one little preposition in Psalm 95 that we can miss. It's the one for. Why are our emotions given to God in verses 1 to 2? It's because in verse 3, For the Lord is the great God. Our Lord is the great King above all gods. Amen? In in His hands are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to Him. The sea is His. He he made it, this, this ocean, when we go out and see the Pacific. Our Father made that, and His hands formed the dry land. When we see everything that is, and see the beauty of creation, and even look at the complexity of human life, and then we think, the One who made all this is My Father, It should touch our emotions. We should be overwhelmed by that. Pastor Jeff Leo, our college pastor, said, I think maybe maybe in our churches we haven't thought enough about creation. Scientists and engineers, you'll appreciate that point, won't you? Because in the very work that you have, you are called to look at what God has made all of the time and see the, the intricacy of it, the beauty of it. And of all people in the world... We here in Southern California should have our emotions touched because hasn't God put us in a beautiful place? Just get up in the morning, you see those foothills. As you come to church and you look at those, they're so beautiful. And you say, my Father made that. As we drive over to the ocean, our Lord made People drive to our community just to see it. And we live here. <laughs> of all people who should be filled with praise, it should be us. For He made it. And, and what is it that's going to make us surrender our wills to Him? Let us bow before Him and worship. Verse 6. Let us kneel before Him. For this one who made everything is our God. We are the people of His pasture. We're the flock He cares for. The eternal care, God cares for us, and He cares about you. He knows you, He knows where you and I have failed. And sometimes we think I'm embarrassed because he'll accuse me. But no, no, no. That's Satan who's the accuser. God is there when we do whatever we do. And he says, I don't want you to do that, but I love you. And I am ready to go with you again if you will just. And when we think about that, we say, here I am. Out of gratitude. Here I am, Lord. You see, if if we're never that grateful... For the grace and mercy of God to love and forgive us, we will never give our wills to Him. I'm telling you that. That is for sure. That's what worship is then. And when we worship corporately, it is us coming together. Because in the rest of the week, other things seem to have been at center stage and our jobs and the toughness with finances and the failures in our families it just seem to be first and they're so important. We come into this place and together, we, uh, we remember who God is. And we shape our lives around him. Just a quick illustration. Um, when I first went to college, um, I went to Moody Bible Institute. And I was on the 17th floor of Culbertson Hall. And we had a, a lounge in the middle. And sometimes when we'd get together, we'd, we'd about one another. You know, I've grown since then. I never gossip about any of you. But one of the guys on our floor, one of the guys on our floor uh, named Mike. I'll just, I call him Mike. It's not really his name. Um, I'm sure his mother and father taught him better, uh, but he never learned good personal hygiene. I mean, he'd work out, but he'd never take a bath or a shower, never use deodorant, never even changed his clothes. It was just disgusting. So one evening we were all talking together. He wasn't there. We were all talking together in and we decided we'd put together our money We didn't have much. And we went out and bought a care package of soap and deodorant and and shampoo and all all sorts of things. And we we put it in a box and and sent it to Mike and sent it to him anonymously uh, through the mail. And waited with bated breath. Just a few evenings later, we were sitting there in the lounge. And Mike comes in, big smile on his face and our box in his hands. He said, guys, look what came in the mail. But he said, isn't this great? He said, but you know, I don't need any of this stuff. So you might like to have it. And started passing it back to us. (laughs) We thought, there's no hope. There's no hope for this man. He'll never change. One day we're sitting down in the student center, which was on the second floor of of Culbertson. And the elevator door opened. And it was a bit of a shock to us. We thought it must be Mike's uh, twin brother getting off the elevator. Because it sure looked like Mike except he was shaved and uh, cleaned up. He even had new clothes on. I'll tell you, he looked good. And we thought, what what could bring this about? In a few moments, she walked in. <laughs> I'll call her Amy. Amy was, the one. I don't know what she saw in Mike, but somehow she had fallen in love with Mike, and yet she was a strong person. And she said, Mike, There's no way in the world I'm going to be seen in public with you until you change your ways, you clean up, or you're never going to be seen with me. And he cleaned up. It taught us a lesson that I will will never forget that what all of our manipulation and plotting and planning and guilt-inducing and shameful words could not bring about, love can produce. And I'll tell you, if that's true, of wanting to shape our lives around anything in this world, even a person, how much more true it should be to shape our lives around a holy God who loves us. That's what worth shape, worship is. And what must happen when we gather in this place with, with whatever gifts we have is that we need to come in so that the whole of our beings can respond to the greatness of our God doing it together. Which brings me to the second question. Then why must we do it together? Why is it essential for us to have these, these regular times of, of getting here in a church and then singing and then opening the Word? And I'll tell you, there's so many answers to be given and I knew I wouldn't have so much time, so I thought there would be only one of these that might be helpful to us as we gather. And it addresses that question that I had earlier on. This difficult, thorny question that almost undermines the Christian faith for many people who want to embrace it. And it is, why is it, if all of this is true, that worship should change and shape our lives so that we look more like God? Why is it that that doesn't happen very much? Don't you sometimes become discouraged when you even look at your own life and say, I've been there pastor so many times, and yet still, I I still wrestle with the same things. What's happening here? What, What might God do? Because, you know, I think most of us who have gone to church very much, if you're a newcomer, you're, you're, you're starting with this. But for many of us who have been here, we know so much. We need to know or we can't live it, but we know so much. And we know that, that when we come to know Christ, we must become like Jesus. And when we come to know Christ, He gives a spirit to us so it should produce what the Bible calls the fruit of God's spirit in our lives. So our lives, Christians, our lives should be characterized by love and, and joy and whatever happens, hope and, and courage and humility and, and mercy and justice and grace and all of these qualities of God, we know that. But what we need is a bridge from, from our minds into the rest of our beings. And what Christians have said is even though God has said, this is my work to produce this in you, and I promise you that what I've started in you I will bring to completion. You know God promises that. He says, what I've started in you, I will bring it to completion. You will someday be conformed to the image of Jesus. Hallelujah. It just seems like it takes a long time. But but even though it's God's work, there's this other side. Some people find it hard to put together, but the Bible does. That though it's God's work, like Philippians 2, 12 and 13, and he does it through our participation in the church and our worship together and life together in the church, Ephesians chapter 4, we still have a personal responsibility. People made in God's image are not just people zapped, poof. We become like, like God. And he gives us the responsibility to make choices to walk with God. And what our brothers and sisters around in the world have said is, we need to make choices to engage in the spiritual disciplines. And what they mean by that is that the spiritual disciplines are those opportunities the Bible t- teaches Uh, to have the whole of our beings brought together, the study of God's Word so that we know what to do. Prayer, which is a commitment of our lives to His sovereignty. Solitude, where we can again have our hearts to be touched by the reality and the presence of God. There are many spiritual disciplines, but listen, are you here with me? The first and foundational spiritual discipline is that God calls us to come and worship together. He lets us know that His life-transforming work is going to happen when we first make sure that we make this choice to worship together with all of God's people. There are people who seem to think I can be a strong Christian without ever worshiping together with God's people. And God's Word says... What do you mean by strong Christian? Because I've given you one another so that you can know me and know how to live and have the motivation to live this way. It's not just because I want to have a lot of people here. But if we're going to be what God would have us to be, we need to make a commitment to worshiping with one another. And I know sometimes we put other things in the place of finding a time to worship together with God's people. But I'm telling you that worshiping together with God's people is a priority greater than than playing golf, than getting an extra hour of sleep, than any other church programs, and I know I'm going to be meddling, even than our kids' sports events. And I ask you to make that commitment to receive the life-changing power of God. Uh, Dr. D.A. Carson, a friend, but also my New Testament teacher when I was in seminary, wrote about this in a devotional book that he has written. It's called For the Love of God. It's in Volume 2, page 25. Look at what he wrote. Note takers, you might be able to get this online or write my assistant Tiffany and she'll send it to you. It's long, but look look at it. He wrote, One of the most striking evidences of sinful human nature lies in the universal, universal propensity for downward drift. In other words, it takes thought, resolve, energy, and effort to bring about reform. In the grace of God, sometimes human beings display such virtues. But where such virtues are absent, the drift is invariably toward compromise, comfort, indiscipline, sliding disobedience and decay that advances, sometimes at a crawl and sometimes at a gallop across the generations. People do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation We slouched toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. And I am calling you to make a regular choice and commitment to this spiritual discipline of gathering together with all of God's people so that together we can put God at center stage. Hear him and leave this place being more of what God would have us to be. Uh, at least in my perspective, our time goes too fast. So let me just say a few words about how we're to do it. You said, ah, oh, yes, Pastor. You left that to the end without any time because that's the real part we wanted. How should we sing together? And how long should this services be? You know, all the questions, all the questions we have. D- did you notice that Psalm 95 didn't talk about those questions? Questions very much about our programs and order of service and styles of how we do. Did you notice? Nor does the Bible in many places. It's because the Bible views those issues as being of secondary importance. And just like Vince Lombardi said, this is football. I want to say this is the church and this is worship according to the Bible. What does it say is of primary importance? I'll tell you a few things. Instruction one, that our gathered worship should be consistent with lives of worship. Do you remember about a year ago, Charlie dates, a good friend of mine came and preached and he took a Psalm like this one and pointed out that it was a Psalm that was written for people who were coming in to the place of worship. In other words, they were worshiping before they were worshiping. Do you see that? Come and as you're worshiping, get yourself ready to meet God. And what he said is we need to do this. Because some of us just pop up at the very last moment and say, oh, I hope I can get a cup of coffee. We come running in. We're still drowsy. We're not ready to meet God. Or sometimes we're even fighting with the rest of our family right before we... Not here at Lake Avenue, but other churches are like that. You know that. And and, and so what the Bible is saying, no, 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 get ready for worship before you come in. And then when you meet God, you're going to meet Him together. And this place is going to be hopping. But I think to extend it, it's telling us, That when God is at the center of our lives and we work at work, not just as unto our employer, but as unto the Lord. Working as an act of worship with God at the center. That when we come into this place, our worship will be different. That when we treat our husband and wife, our children, our friends in a certain way. Listening, looking at their interests throughout the week. Then we we come into the church family We'll have the same readiness Uh, to give up preferences simply because we love to be together with our family. So the Bible is telling us that great gathered worship flows out of lives of worship. My brothers and sisters, if we will live lives of worship as a church family, wherever God sends us, our gatherings here are going to be electric. Instruction two. He says it should happen rhythmically. Do you notice he keeps saying, come, come, come. It is written to people who were just expected on that one day of the week. Remember, seven days, one day unto the Lord. Six days work, one day unto the Lord. And that one day unto the Lord is, is to include times of coming together with all of God's people. Week after week after week after week. It's not just a one-time thing. Oh, I think I'll go this week. Not next week. It is to be a regular part of our lives if it's going to continue to shape our lives. Otherwise, other things are going to shape it far too much. God has asked us to live life in that rhythm where on a regular basis, week after week, we come, we come and put God at center stage together. Instruction three. Our worship together should always include three elements. Praise that engages our emotions, verses one through five. Surrender to God, verses 6 and 7, and the hearing of His Word, verses 8 through 11. And I see that our giving, even even as we heard today, just what John Seacrest said, is a part of our surrendering of all that we are and have to God. It's just a little symbol that all that I have really is God's, and it's stewarding that. Even that is a central part of our worship. Other things can happen in church. John Souther's, as you plan worship services, other things can happen. These three must be there. And any of us who have worshipped with God's people in other parts of the world, haven't you seen how a psalm like this has shaped the lives of God people? That wherever you go, you find people with whatever way they can, getting their voices in praise to God together, and having a time of confession and response together, and making sure that they hear God's word together. So it needs to include at least those three elements if we don't have those three elements when you come to this place then write me those notes and saying let's get the first things first again <laughs> because those must happen when we gather with God's people H- amen weak but i think it was i think it was uh, sincere okay instruction 4 our worship must happen corporately In other words, it doesn't say, come, let me sing. The whole psalm is plural. And that flows out of what the church is. We are a people chosen by God. This isn't my church, it isn't yours, it's his, right? And he has said that when he is done, what he is going to be doing is drawing together a people that when he's done, they are going to be people from every tribe and language and nation, every economic group, every educational background, every age group, gathering and worshiping God together. And so if we're going to understand God the way He really is, we need to come together even with people we wouldn't normally want to be with. And I, I will tell you, as I have throughout my three years, our worship is richest. We see more of God when, it, when our worship includes more of the kind of people that God says, they are in my family. I often feel the pushback, but Pastor Greg, Why? Can't I just worship God in my own walking through Eaton Canyon? Or can't I just at least have a kind of a Bible study at my home with people my own age and we like the same songs? Can't I just do that? And you know what I think God's Word would say? it would say if if that, if that happens, you're only going to see one little limited piece of the greatness of God. And if you're just with people like yourself, you only see this great God from one little limited perspective. Do you remember I showed you in my series on First Peter that quote from C.S. Lewis, the four friends? He always had this place that he met with a group of friends, including people like Charles Williams and, and J.R.R. R. Tolkien. And then Charles Williams died. And he thought, of course, when all the time he spent talking, he'll have more with the rest of the friends. It seemed makes sense, right? Do you remember what he wrote? No, he didn't have more of him. He had less of him. Look at what he said. I'll put it here. If of three friends, okay, A, B, and C, A should die, then B loses not only A, but A's part in C, while C loses not only A, but A's part in B. Anybody have a confused look on your face? Okay, here we go. In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights other than my own to show all of his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charlesian joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself, now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald." And I see some of you nodding. Isn't that true? We know this is true. And again, I say, if that is true of us getting to know one another as just finite human beings, think about how much more true that is of us getting to know God. And this is why I say when we actually find a way to worship together with people so far different from ourselves then we begin to see the greatness of our God from all of these different perspectives and our hearts are lifted and we say, how great is our God? Corporate worship is us coming together and offering all that we have in response to the triune God. We worship Him. Our lives are shaped by Him specifically because He and He alone is worthy of that kind of worship. And my call upon us as a church is for each one of us individually and us as a whole to make a commitment week by week by week to prepare and then to come. Come. Sing and shout. Fall before Him. Hear His Word. Go back out into the world. Struggle. Come back in. Know that God loves us still and is still in control. Sing and shout. Fall before Him. Hear His Word and go. Struggle come until we grow and grow and grow until each one of us and all of us are, as the Bible says, complete in Christ. Until each of us and all of us Joined together before the throne. Together with brothers and sisters. Made complete in Christ too. From every tribe and language and nation. And the greatest corporate worship ever experienced in all of the universe takes place. And we sing together. Because we're going to be seeing Him as He is. Worthy. Worthy is the one to open the scroll. Worthy, the only one worthy is the Lamb who was slain for our salvation. Worthy is He to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Worthy is He. To Him be the glory. Amen. Amen. To him be the glory. Thank you. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, I I pray that you will continue to do your work in this family gathered in this place. That indeed, to your glory, through your power, we will become what you would have us to be. I just pray that Lake Avenue Church will be a place that when people come and visit and see it, they will know you're here. They'll see a lot of your beauty because of what you're doing in us. And Father, I pray that you will use this gathering to do your work in individual lives. Father, there may be some here who have never entered into a relationship with you. May this be their day of faith. And there may be many of us here who come but have never been connected in a way that we receive Your power and strength through being with You together with Your family. Father, deepen that connection. Change us because we have met together. Change us so that that our lives may bring glory to Your name. Because of Jesus, we pray. Amen.